Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. My God. Can you say that this morning? Of the one who sent his son to destroy death? Can you say this morning that you're content where God has placed you with the family he has given you, the job, the house, the spouse, the money, the social status, the intelligence, or lack thereof, the wisdom, the health, or maybe the lack thereof? Are you content? There may be some here this morning that say, I don't believe in God. Really. Ask yourself why you were born, where you were born, and when you were born, and to the parents to whom you were born, and with the color of skin with which you were born. Or for that matter, ask why you were born at all. Is all of that just random chance? What a horrible alternative to God that would be. You may say, well, I don't need God. Really. Because everybody worships a God. For each of us looks for our needs to be met. We worship men and women. And yet, the divorce rate is as high as it is because those men and women fail to meet our needs. We worship our jobs sometimes. And Eventually, rather than receiving promotions, we receive the wink and the nod that early retirement is coming. We worship our children, and yet sometimes they're disobedient and disrespectful. We worship our bodies, or at least some of you do. I certainly don't. And our bodies deteriorate and fail. If you don't believe me, just ask Pastor Todd about his shoulder this morning. We worship drugs and alcohol, and... If we haven't already lost all of those other things, those are soon to go. If you don't believe me, 
Go with me to Brother Brian one night, and I promise you a room full of guys will agree with me. Each of us worships that which we perceive will best meet our needs. And of course, too often what we perceive to be our needs are simply our wants or our desires. And remember what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need financial security. We need to be loved. We need to be respected. But consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning financial security, he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And concerning love, he was despised and rejected of men. And concerning respect, consider Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. If financial security, love, and respect are the things that you need most, you will never follow the one who had none of them. And yet, false teachers peddle this idea that God wants you to have all of those things. Consider the prosperity gospel. When Joel Osteen says, I don't really know what the prosperity gospel is. Of course not. The way I define it is that if I believe God wants, I believe that God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, and in your career. So I do. If that is the prosperity gospel, then I do believe that. Yet, concerning the same prosperity gospel, John Piper says this. If God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul. And as we've done for each of the past eight weeks, we return to the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Philippians, written from jail to an audience that is going to suffer the same things that Paul is suffering. And what has Paul suffered? He tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians, beginning in, in chapter 11, when he says this, five times, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Let's not forget that. Paul wasn't healthy. He was hungry and thirsty in cold and exposure. He wasn't wealthy. In fact, from our text this morning, apparently the Philippian church was the only one who entered into partnership with him. And it was only just recently that they had managed to send him a gift. 
He didn't have comfort in this life unless you consider lashes and beatings and stonings and danger and toil and hardship to be comfort. And Scripture makes clear that all of those things are from God. Because what does God tell Ananias when Ananias is like, uh, are you sure it's Saul that you want me to talk to? Because I've heard bad things about him. And God says, I will show him, meaning Saul, eventually Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul suffered because of God. And yet, Paul didn't feel hated by God. Very much to the contrary. The entire epistle of Philippians is filled with joy. I said at the beginning of this study, it's often called the epistle of joy. And as we close our series in Philippians this morning, I want us to consider two reasons, easy note-taking today, two reasons why Paul has this joy. Number one, God supplies his every need. And number two, God supplies the Philippians every need. First, God supplies Paul's need. After acknowledging the Philippians' concern for him and sending their gift, he makes clear he's not in need. Now, understand that no church had been supporting him except Philippi, and it's been a while since even they've done it, and he's in jail. And so just like we considered last week, that we can have peace in the midst of turmoil, now we have to consider today that we can be in the midst of need and have no need. In verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the context is verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. The connecting sentence is in verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation, to be content. The Greek word there for content can be interpreted uh, as self-sufficient. But verse 13 demonstrates that that is not what Paul means. Instead, he writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, understand that most of the common interpretation of verse 13 is a direct result of that prosperity gospel that I mentioned earlier. T-shirts with the verse and a basketball. Pictures of joggers wearing the shirt. Do you see how the mindset that God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, and in your career could lead to such interpretations? I can be a better basketball player because Christ strengthens me. I can keep running this physical race because Christ strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, Christ does strengthen us for a race. But it's not physical strength. God gave the Apostle Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him from boasting. But we think God strengthens us to achieve perishable wreaths? of which we may boast. Now, I don't, want us to, I don't want you to think that I frown on athletes giving thanks to God when they perform well. In fact, 
we owe thanks to God for everything He provides us. But what I do want us to understand is that it would be a very rare post-game interview indeed where the loser was interviewed. And yet Christ's greatest glory came from losing. And Paul's greatest glory came through suffering. If we thank God when we succeed and fail to thank God when we fail, we unknowingly buy into the idea that God's purpose for our lives is some sort of personal success. When all we have to do is look at His own Son to see that it's just the opposite. God's purpose for Jesus' life was abject failure in the eyes of man. Scripture says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Do you realize that's why he was considered a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles? Who wants to follow a man whose disciples all left him as he was executed like a common slave? Paul, for one. And me for second. Paul's content through him who strengthens him. That same Jesus who bled and died and was buried in a borrowed tomb, who was spat upon and cursed, that same Jesus strengthens Paul. Not just in times of abundance, but in each and every circumstance. The circumstances themselves are inconsequential to Paul's contentment. He can be in need and at the same time not be in need because of Christ Jesus. Recall in verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul declared, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ said this once or twice in the last nine weeks, a person must see great value in something to risk or even give his life to accomplish it. War movies are really good at demonstrating that principle. One of my favorites, despite all of the historical inaccuracies that Matthew will tell you all about if you give him a couple of hours, one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Hugh groaning in the back. As the Scottish are about to wage battle with the British, they're outnumbered, the men are turning to flee, and they say in in retreating, we will run and we will live. And William Wallace's response convinces them to stay when he declares, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And all the red-blooded guys are like, yeah, let's go fight. Yes, they will live if they run, but Wallace points to something of higher value than their lives. Jesus did the same thing. In Mark 8, when he addressed the crowd with his speech in preparation for war. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
you're going to die. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So go ahead, make peace with your family. Don't, don't bring a sword like Jesus said he was doing. Keep your mouth shut. You won't get kicked out of the temple. Curse and swear, I don't know the man. And you'll be safe from persecution. Support abortion rights and march in gay pride parades and you'll be loved by the world. Not be called a dinosaur who's ready to die away. But shame for Christ comes at a terrible cost. Paul realized that, and so he followed Christ. He realized what mattered in this world is a relationship with the one who created it, by whom and for whom all things are created. The one who defines what is right and what is wrong. The one whose value exceeds that of the whole world. All of the world's promises are lies. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. God's purpose for Eve was not good food, aesthetic beauty, or so-called wisdom. God's purpose for Eve was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By seeking her perceived needs instead of God's purpose, Eve gained the whole world and lost her own soul. In Christ, Paul didn't need food to have eternal life. He didn't need comfort or freedom or money. All he had was Christ, and that was enough. Christ supplied his Which brings us to our second point. God supplies the Philippians every need. Philippians 4.10 is very similar in nature to Philippians 1, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul had written, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And now in chapter 4, verse 10, we read, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Note the placement of Paul's thanksgiving in both of those cases. In the Lord. I thank my God. I rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> Both of those are simple acknowledgments that God supplies every need. He didn't thank the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. He thanked God. And verse 6 of chapter 1 points us to that reason. You remember from several weeks ago we covered this. He that began a work, good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good works that they performed were the work of God. And so God is the one who deserves the thanks. And likewise, here in verse 10 of chapter 4, Paul is rejoicing in the Lord. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, too. This rejoicing is a celebration. He is celebrating in the Lord. Why? Because of the Philippians' good works. And verses 15 through 18 tells us more detail about those good works. In verse 15, we're told they entered into partnership with him when no, one, no other church did. In verse 16, they even sent him aid when he was ministering in Thessalonica. He's, he's off supporting another church, and they're still sending him aid. <clears throat> and then in verse 18, he again acknowledges the gift of both Epaphroditus and the gifts that Epaphroditus brought with him. He viewed Epaphroditus himself as a gift of the church. But in verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 11 through 13, Paul has already told them in Christ he has no need of what they provided. But he does say in verse 14, it was kind of them to share his trouble. In using this language and, and thanking God rather than the Philippians for the gifts, he's not ungrateful. On the contrary, he's rejoicing in the Lord for what they've done. He is rejoicing in the Lord for what they've done. He that began a good work in them is continuing the good work in them. And in verses 17 and 18, Paul also points to the ultimate beneficiary of their gifts, the Philippians themselves. Paul doesn't seek the gift. Instead, he seeks the fruit that increases to their credit. What is that fruit? According to verse 18, it's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It should bring to mind Matthew 25 when Jesus speaks of the separation of the sheep and the goats, with the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. And you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, just like Paul, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see, or when did we see you sick? or in prison, and visit you. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Paul was the least of these, and the Philippians are the sheep. Here we see rewards being credited to the Philippians for their good works. Paul calls it the fruit that increases to their credit. But before we conclude that they're saved by those good works, let us recall Ephesians 2.10, that they, are, that they were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ Jesus. In whom is Paul rejoicing? In the Lord. God is in them both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
Paul is rejoicing in the Lord because it is in Christ that their good works are made manifest. Apart from Him, they can do nothing. God has provided Paul's every need. And in verses 19 and 20, we have the great truth that Paul imparts to the Philippians. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The same God that supplied Paul's need will supply their need. And considering all that we've discussed over the past eight weeks and this morning, what do they need? They need to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. They need to stand firm in one spirit. They need to suffer for Christ's sake. They need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. They need to do all things without grumbling or questioning. They need to look out for false teachers. They need to think like Paul. They need to hold true to what they've attained. They need to imitate Paul. They need to stand firm in the Lord. They need to agree in the Lord. They need to rejoice in the Lord always. They need to guard their hearts. They need to practice the things that they have learned and received and heard from Paul. All of those are commands to the Philippian church in those four short chapters. But note the things that are missing from that list. They don't need good health. They don't need a good education. They don't need a good job. They don't even need a job. They don't need love and respect. They don't need the praise of others. What they need is the one who is in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Scripture tells us that it's God, God's will for us is our sanctification. That is how we put to death the works of the flesh, which, by the way, is sanctification, putting to death the works of the flesh. We do it because God wills it. And it is, and He is in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And all of those things that I mentioned that the Philippians need can be summed up in the need for holiness. We need holiness, and God provides it. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 6. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in Revelation 21, we see the result of Christ's sanctifying His bride. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God will supply every need for those who love Him. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, 
God's riches in glory are in Christ Jesus. Our glory comes at the expense of Christ. Consider Paul's use of the possessive my in referring to God. My God will supply every need of yours. But Paul's declaration of my God was only made possible by another declaration of my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken Recall our scripture reading from Hebrews. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring the everyone in Hebrews 2.9 are the offspring of Abraham. My God met my need when he chose me in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. My God met my need when he sent his son to die in my place to take my curse and make it his own. My God met my need when he circumcised my heart, granting me faith and repentance. My God meets my day, my need day by day as He guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. My God met my need when He began a good work in me. And He will meet my need as He completes that good work at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's God is my God. And if you are in Christ, my God is your God. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. My God will meet your every need. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul completes his letter, he sends greetings and bids the Philippians to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And his final benediction in verse 23 is this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. For it is only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our needs will be met. Concerning the cares of this world and our time in it, we read this in Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This morning, if the decisions of your life or, you, or the decisions you make in this life are driven primarily by money, remember that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If the decisions are made primarily by following your heart, know that the Bible says it's desperately wicked and will lead you astray. If the decisions you make are driven primarily for a desire for comfort and peace, Purity. understand that living a life in enmity towards God cannot bring comfort and peace. In fact, Scripture says it only brings wrath and fury. Instead, do as the Apostle Paul urged the Philippians to do. 
count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Have the mind of Jim Elliot when he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The message of the Philippians, or to the Philippians, is a simple one. Look to the only one who can meet needs. Look to Christ alone. Father, help us to not be in rocky soil or thorny soil that would choke out the riches of your glory in Christ Jesus. Help us to be reminded day by day that you sending your Son, God incarnate, becoming flesh and becoming sin for us. That is not to be taken lightly, Father. Help us to reflect on how much cost was involved in our salvation in order to bring many sons to glory. The Son of Man and the Son of Glory had to die. It is through His blood that we are cleansed. And so, Father, as we consider the world's alternatives, help us to remember that Satan has lied from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. And when we hear his voice tell us something that contradicts your word, help us to remember that your word is eternal. Your word is perfect. Your word And so, Father, guide us each day with your word. Keep us in faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.